I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Maria Cliff, Head of Operations and Business Development for MTR UK. Maria Cliff, welcome, a very warm welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast. Thanks, Nina. So lovely to see you. You've been, um, I know you're you're in a new role now, Head of Operations and Business Development for MT, I'm going to say MDR, it's not MDR, it's MTR UK. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about this new role. But as, as I know already, and I'm really looking forward to sharing with our podcast audience, you've had a cracking career to date, haven't you? Haven't always been in the rail industry. So I'm really interested to hear your career story to date. Um, our audience love to know why transport? Why did you come into this industry? And please talk us through the roles that you've done right up to present day in relation to what your current role is with MTR. Great, thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to have a chat with you as always. Um, and I guess let me start by telling you about what I'm doing at the moment. Um, you're right, working for MTR UK. Um, I've been there almost four months now, actually. Oh, wow. It's absolutely flown by. Um, and at the moment, my role is, it's interesting because it's split really between two main responsibilities. So one is providing oversight and support to our existing operating businesses. So we um, operate the Elizabeth Line through London, um, which is about to, to reach um, a, you know, a pinnacle of opening our central operating section yeah. in the summer. Really exciting, connecting the east with the west um, with a number of amazing new stations. Uh, so it's kind of all guns firing you know, on that and we're all building up to that launch this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... The other side of my role is um, also looking at what's on the horizon um, and and identifying new opportunities, new ways that we can um, look at developing three parts of the business. One is operations, which is my bag. Um, The other is infrastructure um, and also property as well. So we've kind of got three pillars of the business Um, And where there is opportunity to combine a couple of those or even all three, that's what we're really trying to do, um, including bringing the Hong Kong model um, over to the UK, um, which we're looking at doing at at Liverpool Street Station in London, where we're investing money into the station to improve the size of the concourse, improve the capacity, um, but also just generally invest and improve the experience for customers um, and that is all off balance sheet, not taxpayer money. So really exciting stuff. And the first time that that's been done in the UK. So lots and lots of stuff going on. Yeah, amazing. So you you might not be able to tell me too much about this, but when you say bringing the Hong Kong model across to the UK, yes, are you able to tell us kind of a bit more about that in terms of what that means? What does the Hong Kong model look like? Yes, so it's investing in the station as a place. So in Hong Kong, MTR is known for operating all parts of the railway system. Um, So that's both the track and the trains, um, but also utilising the space around and above the station as well um, in terms of property. Um, So it's quite difficult to do in the UK 
um, because um, Hong Kong is set up in a different way, but it allows real investment in the station and private funding to, to benefit the customers. Um, and, and so that's the, that's the aim, really. I get really excited about station stuff. Um, that's my that's my admission right here and right now. Yeah. I think so. Obviously, I, we we work with the rail industry, but if I was going to work in it, I would want to do something relating to stations. I just think that they are a massive asset that the UK railway could be making so much more of. So I'm going to be watching with interest and the fact that there's private funding there as well kind of makes it even better. And for you to be involved with something which is a first in the UK is also makes it even more exciting. So look at you, I can't wait to see this as it evolves and and we start to see the results of it. Yeah, you're right about stations. One of my favourite roles was, you know, being duty station manager at Oxford and just kind of thrust into the activity and you just find your feet and you just have to get on with it. Yeah. yeah. So let's go back. Let's take you back in time um, to when you started work, because, and this is kind of like for a lot of people, it's, oh, do you want me to go back, you know, right to the beginning? And it's like, yeah, actually, I'd really love you to go right back to the beginning. And yeah. so, so, so what did you do? And also, why did you do it? What took you on the path? And I think it's fair to say that every single guest we've had on the podcast um describes their career journey as a wiggly one it's never you know this kind of idea that your career trajectory is just a straight line um is a bit of a myth so tell us about your wiggles maria right from the beginning all the way through to present day first time someone's asked me that question <laughs> <laughs> I um, it was me <laughs> So um, when I um, was at university, I had the opportunity to study abroad for a year. So I went to Singapore, studied at the National University of Singapore over there and travelled throughout all of Southeast Asia as part of my course, which was absolutely amazing. Um, But even just before that, I remember being a really small child and I got some inheritance from a family member and I wanted to use it to buy a mobile home. And I got my mum to take me to Glossop Caravans to have a look at what I could get, which wasn't very, which wasn't a lot with the money that I had. But it's always been in me to want to pack up everything I've got and move about and travel the world and have that kind of freedom, I think. So um, moving into transport was something that I had always considered, but I didn't really know where, I didn't know how, I didn't know whether it logistics or if it would be the railway or what you know what sector of transport it would be um so when I graduated I moved to Japan for a year um, and worked for the Japanese government out in Shizuoka in Japan um right by Mount Fuji it was so cool I could see Mount Fuji out of the windows of my office um and when I came back after a year that's when I started to apply for graduate roles um at the time I was working in a prison in Salford in Manchester and funnily enough um I applied for the first group graduate scheme for rail operations amongst others and also um, the prison service graduate scheme and I got offered both roles on the same day and had to make a decision um which job I would take and I decided to take the railway um, path, but ironically, I could have ended up as a governor 
of a prison somewhere in the northeast of England. So wow. um, my life could have been very different. Um, Absolutely. Today. Good heavens. So when you were working in the prison in Salford, what were you doing then, Maria? What were you involved with? I was a family support worker. Um, so working with the um, partners and the children of um, the guys that were in the, in the prison. It was a 1500 um, all male um, private prison. And um, our role was to help keep the bonds and the connections between the guys who were in inside and also their families on the outside so that when they were released, they had that connection and then they had that support network that reduced the chances of them reoffending. Yeah. Um, when they were when they were out back in back in the world um so it was a harrowing role but I have to say it was amazing and it taught me to be able to find common ground and make connections with anyone people you have zero in common with yeah. you you know just learn to listen and, and try and understand what they're going through really well it stands to reason that there would be that role However, what what strikes me with what you just said is that my first thought is that oh, I never, I didn't know that role existed. I didn't know somebody did that. Mm. As I say, it stands to reason that you would. But it occurs to me that there are so many jobs out there that we don't know that people do. And when you're in school and you know you're getting people kind of asking you what you want to do with your career, what do you want to do, what do you want to do when you grow up? There's so many things that we don't know about that happen unless you know somebody who does that role already and it's kind of bringing me back to this you've got to see it to be it you've got to know about these roles and you've got to kind of have evidence of people who've done them and what they've got out of it because you can imagine like you just said hugely challenging to do and and how you kind of go home in the evening and forget about it before you go back in the following day I'm not sure um but how rewarding and but they did but they didn't get you the rail industry no, no, they didn't. it's interesting what you just said because I kind of feel like the railway is a bit like a house in that if you're new to the railway and you bought a new house you get to see it built from the ground up and you get to see all the different factors that go into it and how it eventually becomes your home but if you already know about the railway or you know somebody who works there or you've got a family member who's in the railway you've kind of lived in that in, in an existing house already so you've seen all the nuts and bolts and you've seen all of the good memories and you've seen all of the kind of the bad the bad stuff that happens sometimes in life so um there's so many different factors to it and people have no idea when you strip it all back actually all all the things that people can do in yeah. our industry huge opportunity but so so transport transport one over the prison service and you went into first group on the graduate scheme tell, tell us about that Maria how was that for you so I started up at Scott Rail um which was great for me I'd gone to university in Glasgow so really happy to be back um in Scotland and it was a real kind of whistle stop tour of all of the elements of the railway um, so I was able to spend time um, with the driver's function, with on trade. I learned, I trained as a guard. Um, I also worked in revenue protection and with the fraud teams, with the, with the safety teams. And it kind of showed me how to put all the parts of the railway together and also cherry pick all the good stuff that I saw from all the managers 
um, and shape how I wanted to approach my management style and my leadership um, style as well. So, um, yeah, I remember fondly working trains, you know, Glasgow to Edinburgh. And it's, yeah, it was a it was an eye opening experience. So I was there for about nine, 10 months right. and then came down south to work for what was First Great Western at the time, working for an amazing woman, Claire Mann. Um, who was our regional manager and then carried on doing my different placements starting with Oxford as as a station manager and um, figured out what I wanted to do really and got my first permanent role as a guards manager uh, managing Reading and Redhill depots so about 150 guards Um, and it was it was great. We had a great team, um, not just in the on-train team. We were, you know, really, we were a great unit as an East region. Um, everybody worked together, drivers on train and stations. And it was a really, when I look back on, you know, the buzz that the railway ha- that has and had, that was a really fun time uh, working on the railway. Yeah. Um, then I moved on into what people said, the big bad world of drivers. <laughs> Um, I can remember having a conversation with somebody who said, how are you going to deal with drivers? And I and I said to them, well, you know, I spent a year in a prison in Manchester. I think I think I'll be all right. Um, and spent three years um, at the time, the only female driver depot manager um, for Great Western um, mm. and learned a lot. My drivers kind of gave me almost an idiot's guide to to driving a train, the systems. I had never been a driver. Um, and so that was quite a challenge to overcome the stigma that came with that, really, um, and my background. But I used to do two cab rides a day in and out of work. And um, it was it was brilliant. So I learned a lot of my technical railway knowledge in that role, I would say. Yeah. And, and I absolutely can can understand that that would be a fun place to be. It sounds like there was an amazing camaraderie. There was lots of great team stuff. But actually, yes, traditionally one of the most challenging roles on the railway. And you've gone in there, you know, you're a bit different to the majority of people in the team. So there must have been challenges as well, Maria, in terms of establishing yourself yeah. And, and kind of coming in with, yeah, you've you've never been a driver. Right. Um, you know, you don't look and sound like the rest of them. So how how did you overcome that? Because there must, I absolutely 100% expect that there were challenges that you've had to overcome. Mm. I think for me, the biggest factor was spending the 40 minutes in the cab each day with different drivers and I never knew which driver it was going to be when the train pulled into the station when I was living in the Cotswolds and um and whoever it was I would get in the cab with it didn't matter and so um being in their environment being in their place of comfort and um you know familiarity allowed us to have more open and productive conversations than we ever would have in a mess room or in my office um and I learned so much about every single driver um 
And people love to talk about their families. We talked so much about holidays, where they were going, where I was going, and just finding that common ground again, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, you know, them knowing that what we spoke about in the cab wouldn't go any further and building that trust with everybody, really. Um, and I did get some funny looks, you know, climbing up into the cab of a HST on the platform socks and people wondering what was going on because yeah. I, they didn't expect, I guess, someone like me to be getting in the cab of a train, which is different now. But, you know, eight years ago, seven, eight years ago was quite a different picture. Yeah, yeah um it's it's another kind of another um piece of evidence there that the railway is all about people isn't it it's actually and and yes we need the trains to get us from a to b but the more people i speak to the more evidence i have that this industry is about its people and and that's what makes the difference and building those relationships and getting to people i think you make a really good point meeting them on their own ground in their own environment rather than come to my office and let's have a conversation or in the mess room when perhaps they you know they need their break in between their shifts whatever you know so meeting them in their own environment i think is a top tip by the sound of it um but it does sound like you had you had a great time so so what was what happened next so then I moved into a role as senior program manager looking after um, the Heathrow Express management contracts that Great Western were developing. Um, so the Heathrow Express staff two peed over um, to Great Western. So managing that transition, um, looking at the fleet cascade as well when the class 387s um, were being fitted with ETCS and being branded to go down to Heathrow Airport. Um, and I did that role for um, just under a year and then had the opportunity to move to East West Railway Company um, at its kind of inaugural stage, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, and joined the ops team there. Yeah, that was very much that kind of exciting opportunity of a blank piece of paper um, and being part of that initial startup team. And, and that that role was just a perfect role for you, wasn't it? Kind of going in and, and using all of the skills and experience that you'd built up to that point. Yeah, if someone hands you a blank piece of paper and says, do you want to help to develop the concept for what this railway could and should be? I mean, who was I to say no to that? It was amazing. What were the highlights, Maria? Um, we did last year, well, yeah, last year and the year before we were out doing non-statutory public consultation, which during COVID was a real challenge because, um, of course, the ideal scenario is that you get out and you go to village halls and you go to local community centres and talk to people face to face so you can really listen and empathise and try and understand their views. And we've done that previously as the company before COVID. Um, so setting all of, all of that up in a virtual environment and having to communicate through, you know, PowerPoint presentations and, and cameras was a real challenge. Um, but one that we kind of rose to and we had um, a huge response to the to the non-stack consultation, but also including a lot of support for the scheme. So, you know, the, the railway between Oxford and Cambridge exists in parts, um, but there was an opportunity to really create, um, you know, a line and, and a service that 
serve the community mm-hmm. and improved their lives and attracted people into the area and gave you know better jobs and housing and um, lots and lots of benefits. So that was a real highlight. I think the other highlight for me was when I had started not long after I was asked to lead the rolling stock procurement. Yeah. Um, which was something if you'd have told me a few years before I would do, I never would have believed you because again, um, you know, I have had a railway background, but rolling stock was an area that was new to me. Um, had a lot of support and a lot of really great people on the technical side of the procurement, but doing all of the market engagement, developing the strategy, um, taking it through the department and treasury and you know, being a bit of a one-woman band, we were a small team, yeah. um, but it, that was a great opportunity and also um, something that is yeah, definitely one of, one of my career highlights and enabled me to build my network more than I'd ever realised, meet yeah. great people from across the industry in the supply chain and the manufacturers and the rolling stock companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really grateful for um, East West Rail trusting me to... Yeah. To get that done. Yeah. That and it was it was a big job, wasn't it? And like you say, so many aspects of it completely new to you. Yeah. But because you've kind of evidenced, I guess, throughout your career that give me something to do and I'll go and do it. And you've developed that style for how you do it in a very kind of I love it because it's very straightforward and common sense approach. But you do so much of what you do is is kind of with that network, with that relationship side. Um, And I am absolutely always overwhelmed with your memory of who's who, where they are. And I'm like so, so envious of it because it's kind of like you instantly remember names, which is something that I've always been able to do. But for some reason, which might be to do with my advancing years. I can't do that as well anymore. I so mean, it does help me get up my name badges as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a benefit. <laughs> Absolutely. And so from East West Rail and then into the, the role with MTR, which, as you say, you've been in for four months now and, and getting your feet under the table in terms of supporting on the Elizabeth line, which is really exciting. Again, something brand new. And then all of this stuff around new opportunities. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens at Liverpool Street in terms of that um, that development. It sounds amazing. So lots going on. And you've seen um, you've seen some change already, obviously, in the industry. Um, you've alluded to the fact that, you know, seeing seeing you climbing in the cab now might not look as strange as it did seven or eight years ago. There's been some change, um, some change in the way we work. But we are at the kind of the very beginning of some massive transformational change. Yeah. And um, and I think that anyone who's worked in the industry, I've, you know, it's it's nine years since I came into the industry now. And I think that we we would all say that change is necessary and was probably overdue. So the pandemic has kind of accelerated that. Um, still quite a bit to do. I'm going to do my um, my traditional intuitive insights get my magic wand out now and I'm going to grant you three wishes for what would if you were if you were ruling the world Maria if you were sat at the top of this industry and it was entirely in your gift Mm. in relation to what we focused on what we did differently what you would like to see 
what would that be? I guess the first one is pretty simple, which is people working together across the industry. And there's lots of really good examples where that is happening right now and has happened since the pandemic and well before the pandemic in pockets that weren't necessarily shouted about. Um, I think in the last you know couple of weeks, I've been involved in the um, free travel for Ukrainian nationals that's going to be provided across, that is provided, I should say, from some, from last Sunday across the network. And, you know, the meetings and the kind of force behind it was so joined up across government and BTP and Network Rail and all the operators and really showcases what we can do really quickly mm. if everyone works together and everyone is doing what they're doing for the right reasons mm. um and you know that's a kind of a macro i guess example with um you know the ukrainian nationals but um we need more of that yeah um, and we need to take out the pain points um someone referred to them as time vampires to me many years ago and I really like that expression you know what is everybody's time vampire or you know numerous time vampires how can we remove that or share the pain and share the love mm. to make things better um and there's a lot of impetus to do it now there's a lot of people who are waiting for change but ultimately we've still got a railway to run and things still need to we still need to keep people and goods moving. So there's a balance there between what can we do now and how forward-looking should we be? Mm. Um, so I guess that would be my first wish. Um, my second wish, and I'll get on my soapbox, <laughs> is when it comes to decision-making from a financial perspective, taking a view of a whole life cost. Right. Um, for the for a railway system or a project or things that are going to be implemented for the better for the better of the customers and the passengers um it's it's a real challenge at the moment everywhere we're hearing there's no money or it's challenging and you have to you know really provide that um at, that kind of outward justification yeah. for why we're spending on certain areas and for me, if there's a really solid business case that looks at the whole life cost of an investment, um, we should do it. Yeah. Again, quite simple. Yeah. I guess that's one of the um, the interesting parts, isn't it, in terms of so I, I didn't understand at all until I came into the industry how political it was and how closely tied to the government the rail industry is. Um ultimately run by private operators but very much under the in the gift of the treasury and even more so because of the last two years and the amount of, of public money which has been put into the railway but that kind of now the challenge of as you've said we need to invest we need to we there's money that needs to be spent but we also know full well that there's areas that we could be more efficient in and kind of I think what what it comes down to from my outside perspective looking in is that trust that the treasury or the government or at large has needs to trust the industry 
to deliver what it needs to deliver at, at the cost it needs to deliver it, which comes to your point. If there's a strong business case for why you should spend that money, then why don't we spend it then? It's my very simplistic world that I live right. in. And there may be, there'll be people listening to this who understand, you know, the kind of maybe they are in the thick of the, the financial aspects who are kind of, yeah, well, it's not that easy. And no, it's not that easy, but it, it you might. You gave me a wish. So yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I might have to kind of like supercharge my magic wand for that one. What's, um, what's your third one, Maria? My third one is we're focusing a lot, rightly, after COVID about getting people back on trains. Um, but for me, we we haven't really answered the question about why people who didn't travel by train before COVID, mm. um, you know, why they didn't do it and how we get people who've never considered the railways to mm. use the railways. Um, I think it's more evident now with the bounce back of the leisure market over, you know, in the weekend travel, that people are seeing rail as a really great way to get around. Um, but my wish would be that rail was everybody's first choice or public transport was everybody's yeah. first choice um, and that people could do it from their door to to their end destination we are getting there there's some really cool stuff out there you know with a lot of the OEMs and people who are looking at mobility as a service and autonomous vehicles but for me that seems really far in the future and you know talking to people during the non-stop consultation about where we were going to build new stations mm. you know, outside of Cambridge and why their key question was well how do I get to the station yeah um so that would be my that would be my other wish that everybody it you know rail was for all and it was accessible to everybody yeah and that kind of for me links in with your first wish around people working together across the industry but kind of lifting it up a level and and kind of from rail into transport as a whole because there are there's some great innovations happening uh, in terms of demand responsive transport and how do the, the whole active travel piece which i think is really exciting i live um i don't i guess i'm about 3 miles away from my nearest station at bookshaw parkway i have no bus service from where i live i have to walk a mile and a half to a bus stop um, there are no street lights where I live. So if I'm doing it in summer and I set off early enough and I try and ignore the fact that where I live is, is um, a big farming community. So don't wear your best shoes if you're out walking. Um, so I've got, you know, I could walk a mile and a half to the bus stop and then get the bus to the um, to the railway station. But it's not it's not an easy option. It just isn't. And there are lots of people in my kind of position who would like to use public transport more but can't. So that innovation piece around how do we do, as you've said, the, the kind of the door-to-door -door service to make it easier for people. Um, and I am definitely with you on the, there's lots and lots of talk about getting people back to the railway. And I'm going, yes, but what about all these people who've never been on a train and have never used the railway system? How do we get them in, engaged and wanting to use it? So lots to go up, <clears throat> absolutely lots to go up. And we should be riding the wave because I think there's been lots of positive media um, you know, presence about 
everything that happened during COVID and all of the good stuff that the railway was doing in terms of, you know, keeping people moving, getting key workers to where they needed to be, you know, keeping the supermarkets stocked through, you know, freight, that that has opened up people's minds to what the railway is and we need to keep plugging it. Yeah, we've got to keep some momentum, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. So you've mentioned, you mentioned, um, one of your managers earlier on, Claire Mann. So I, I'm kind of coming on to this part of the podcast conversation now where I'm asking you to kind of reflect back on your career to date. And um, you've, you have you kind of already alluded to the fact that there are people who who have managed you and you've learned from. And I'm going to guess that you'd like the rest of us, that some of those people you've learned things about how you would like to manage, how you want to develop your style, and then other things that you think, hmm, won't be doing that. Um, so there's, there's kind of lots of learning. Um, as you look back over your career so far, Maria, who have been the role models for you? Who have been the people that you've looked to to kind of like who've, who've inspired and motivated you? So there's one standout person and I met her relatively recently. Um, she actually spoke um, on an, an International Women's Day event that I attended a few years ago. Um, her name is Dr. Kamal Hoti and she came over to the UK in the 60s um, from India and she faced a lot of kind of cultural adversity during her career and she joined um the bank she joined Lloyds Bank um and was the first ever female bank manager um in the southeast and the bank's first Asian manager ever right and she the first thing that she said said to me when I met her was you know would your team walk over hot coals for you and I thought, that's a really interesting question. And she said she starts most of her conversations with people that don't know her and who she hasn't met before with that question mm. because that's where she wants to be, that's what she aims to do in any role or any kind of leadership position that she's found herself in, in terms of building that trust, being authentic and being herself. Um, and her story is one that um, was was quite um, quite harrowing, quite up and down. And she is an amazing lady. She's very softly spoken, but has such gravitas and such kind of confidence in you know quiet confidence that means that she, in many respects, quite different to me. But I really admired her approach, yeah. and she really has such gumption and just got on with what she needed to do despite facing um you know real challenges in her career so I was lucky enough to be coached by her for a couple of years we built up a really um really great relationship she was um awarded um a, an OBE in 2017 for her services to diversity and um, anybody that doesn't know about her, you know, should definitely look her up because um, what a lot of what she said really, really resonated with me. And it doesn't matter that she's not in transport. It doesn't matter that she's come from banking um, because 
we across every industry, I think, have got shared experiences. Absolutely, especially when it comes to um, the the leadership side of things, because that's that area that doesn't matter what industry sector you're in, what job you do. It's that kind of understanding who you are and then having the confidence and the courage to be yourself, to take your whole self to work every day. Um, and I'd this kind of I'm I am genuinely fascinated by people who are softly spoken and who are quite gentle in terms of their communication because yes. I'm really aware that uh, the more excited and enthusiastic I get, the louder I get, <laughs> and the more the Lancashire accent comes out. So when I whenever I meet somebody who's like that, I'm kind of oh, I need to learn from this person. I need to be, you know, try to be more measured and more calm. But I love being in their presence because it automatically kind of does that. Um, and thank you for using one of my all-time favourite words that I haven't heard for so long, which is gumption. I think I last heard it at Christmas when I watched The Holiday because Kate Winslet uses it with Arthur. Yes. So, so that's the last time I heard that word and I'm going to make it my mission to use it as often as I can for the rest of the week. I love it. On the bandwagon. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And also that that you've had that coaching and the fact that you've you've actually it's taken me right back to something you said right at the beginning Maria where you were lucky enough to go to Singapore as part of your university degree um, and I had this conversation with um, with another podcast guest actually Rita Williams who works at TFL and Rita was was talking about her career and I said to her what I'm about to say to you this wasn't lucky though was it you did something to put yourself in that position they didn't you weren't just sat there one day and somebody came over and said oh Maria you'll do we need somebody for Singapore can you go you will have put yourself in that position to spot the opportunity to make sure that you were visible for the people making the decision Um, and the fact that 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 Kamal has been a speaker at an event you've then taken action you've gone and introduced yourself you've had a conversation and as a result you've had two years of of learning through the coaching so a really great example of seeing an opportunity and grabbing it um so thank you for sharing that thanks sometimes it doesn't well it pays off most of the time Nina but I can remember being on the plane to Tokyo when I decided I was going to go to Japan and thinking I don't even know how to say good morning in Japanese and the panic kind of set in and I thought I've made this decision what on earth have I done yeah it's the right thing to do and you just kind of have to push through and carry on absolutely and there are there are lots of of different obviously lots of different people in the world with different approaches to risk and um, and it's absolutely not the same, but similar. I, I distinctly remember having um, accepted a job when I worked for um, the Royal Bank of Scotland in Lancashire, was offered a job in head office in Edinburgh and said, oh, yes, please. And then driving up to Scotland for that first, you know, I started on the Monday, I was travelling up on the Sunday and I was thinking, oh, right, what for done here then? So it's kind of like, not not necessarily, I did know how to say good morning. I was all right when I got there, I was fine. But that whole kind of, gosh, we've made a decision, you've gone for it, you've grabbed the opportunity. And then sometimes it's like, oh, you realise you've done it. Um, but then people with a different attitude to risk would have kind of had lots of spreadsheets on the go, weighing up the pros and cons and should we do it or not, by which time we're already on the bus or the plane. It's too late, yeah. <laughs> too late, yeah, yeah. 
So I'm going to, I could, as always, um, I could talk to you for ages. So I'm good, but I need to bring the conversation to a close with my um, traditional question of my guests on the virtual couch. I'd love you to share a quote with us, Maria, in terms of something that inspires you or um, can motivate you or informs the way that you think. Um, so if you could leave us with a, with a favourite quote of yours, um, then I'd really appreciate it. Well, Nina, I have to say you've slightly stolen my thunder on this because earlier in the podcast, you actually mentioned the quote that I had in my head. Oh, really? Yes. And my quote was that you can't be what you can't see. Ah, uh, okay. And, and it's and true and worth saying it again, actually. You can't be what you can't see. And absolutely, we need we need more of that, don't we? We need to be um we need to see different people in different roles in the industry and also talk about what those different roles are um so to make sure that people are aware that you don't actually need to wear a boiler suit and have a bit of oil on the end of your nose in order to work in the railway because there's lots of very exciting career opportunities to follow yeah and i think if people look around their family and their friends and their local communities is that what they see in the railway mm. Yeah, I know it's certainly my daughter, her friends. I mean, obviously, Neve is well versed in how exciting the rail the rail industry is. However, when we have her friends round to the house and I start talking to them about what kind of careers they're considering, so these these primarily all old girls, they're at uni now. Um, so, so have you considered the railway? No. Why would I? I don't want to drive a train. Well, okay, fair enough. But there's loads of other jobs that you can do. We are the best kept secret, Maria. This industry is oh, join us. Secret. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'm sure that people will be inspired and will be motivated by hearing your story. I'm super grateful to you for joining me. Um, I always love your company. You know I do. So I have really enjoyed this conversation this morning. Thank you so much, Maria Cliff. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite. My huge thanks to Maria for sharing her journey so far, her thoughts and her insights on working for the UK rail industry. 